Roger Williams University is hosting a crisis management seminar on May 3rd at their Providence campus. Crises, whether a natural disaster, cyber attack, or financial instability, can have severe repercussions if not handled properly. This is where crisis management plays a pivotal role. Join Roger Williams' MBA students and expert speakers to learn how to prepare for the unexpected. The program is totally free and open to the public. You can register online at rwu.edu slash events slash crisis management symposium. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, my conversation with longtime Providence Journal columnist M. Charles Baxt. Charlie Baxt, one of the old guard legends, so to speak, here in Rhode Island media. And I thought it would be nice right now to bring on someone who's probably a familiar voice to some of you out there and uh, someone you haven't heard from potentially in a little while. And also for some of you younger listeners, some people my age and younger, um, who may have, you know, your media consumption may have not, may not have overlapped, I should say, with the uh, the career of M. Charles Beck. So this will be a good introduction to him for you, someone you should add to your deck of Rhode Island media and politics and cultural baseball cards, so to speak. So obviously right now we're in the midst of an unprecedented event, and I'm sure most of you are listening from home. And hey, we're going to stick together on this operation here. And if we do, hopefully following the guidance of you know, some really strong medical thinkers that are at least here in Rhode Island leading the charge, right? Um, buttressed by an infrastructure of, of communication, an infrastructure of leadership that seems to be firing on all cylinders, okay? So throughout this, my role will be varied. It will be, number one, um, not necessarily in any particular order. I'll be, uh, from a news perspective, I'll be trying to get you the latest information that's coming out, at least here in Rhode Island, um, live streaming the governor's daily and sometimes multiple per day press conferences, okay, um, bringing you any information that comes in, perspective, etc., cetera, uh, across the social media platforms. But then also, number two, um, to entertain. You know, we're going to try to ramp it up here on the podcast and really dig into some interesting stuff, um, interesting guests, interesting topics, and balance that you know, both needs here, both services that an operation like this can provide. So I'm still meditating on how to do that best. It's obviously evolving every day, but I felt like today would be a good day to go and hear from an old friend here in Rhode Island. Hello. What drew you into the news industry or media in general as a writer, as someone creative? What was sort of the instinct that or necessity that pulled you into news media? It goes back to when I was a young boy in Fall River, Massachusetts. My father was Walter Winchell's first cousin. And uh, possibly because of that, my father had an intense uh, interest in the newspapers. We always had several newspapers in the house. And uh, Walter Winchell had a radio program broadcast at 9 o'clock on Sunday nights and everything in the house had to stop at 9 o'clock on Sunday nights so we could listen to it. And uh, so I think that was uh, the environment. And then I just had an interest in it, uh, you know, uh, taking a typewriter and uh, trying to put out a little neighborhood newspaper, 
the city auditor lived next door to me, and uh, he said, if you come down to City Hall, I'll get you in to see the mayor. So I interviewed the mayor. Mm-hmm. It couldn't have been a very profound interview, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so stuff like that uh, got me interested, and I was interested in politics, and I guess the uh, they just all sort of merged. What was your first paid gig or, or internship or whatever at a major news outlet or any sort of standard issue? Well, my first uh, gig was with the Fall River Herald News. Um, it was uh, uh, the editor of it, uh, editor and publisher, was uh, a man named Ed Delaney. His uh, grandson, Mike Delaney, is a prominent editor at the Providence Journal now mm-hmm. uh, doing visuals. Um my father knew him, and uh, between my let me get this straight between the eleventh and twelfth grades at Phillips Academy Andover, um, I devoted a good deal of time uh, writing a series for the paper on my summer, the previous summer in Israel. And it was like, I wouldn't say torture, but it didn't didn't exactly come naturally. It didn't fly off the uh, typewriter, but, uh, you know, so I labored on that. And uh, and they published it uh, with my byline. I think I got paid for it probably uh, $15, maybe $15 uh, times three. I don't remember. But what I do remember is that the next summer, Heading into the summer, I walked into the paper, and uh, Mr. Delaney said I could write, uh, you know, freelance uh, stories during the summer. And uh, I think I said I wrote some even before the summer. But anyway, uh, at the start of the summer, I walked in and I said, well, I'm going to England for a couple of weeks um, with uh, a friend and his mother and... uh, so he said I could send dispatches from England. So I would do things like I would go to uh, Wimbledon and I would come back to the hotel and I would take, uh, I would write by hand a, a sort of a color feature story on Wimbledon. And then I would take it to a secretarial service and have them type it up. And then I would put it in an envelope and mail it to the former Herald News. <laughs> yep. And, you know, maybe a week later or so, uh, they published it. And they had my name and they had a little uh, phrase that went with it, a young yank in Britain. I was 18. <laughs> wow. So I did a few of those. I did one on Wimbledon, one on uh, the Henley Royal Regatta and went on something else, and uh, when I got home, I got paid $15 a piece for that, for those. Mm-hmm. I wrote a couple more about my trip, and then I wrote some other things uh, during the summer, like I went to the Newport uh, tennis tournament and wrote about the color there. I did a piece about families that had family reunions, family newsletters, <clears throat> So uh, at the end of the summer, I believe I had made $108. <laughs> I would write a story. Uh, for instance, uh, Mr. Delaney said I should go to Horseneck Beach. 
in Westport, the state had spent a lot of money fixing it up after the 1954 hurricane, and he said I should go there and talk to some lifeguards that they probably were college kids with summer jobs and, you know, take in the scene there. And I would come back and I would, I would, I would write the thing and I would sit in his, first of all, just writing, sitting in the newsroom. There was a, you know, a trip for a kid. And then I would go into his office and he'd take a quick look at it and he'd write a note on it, like run this inside. (laughs) And, and then he would write out a voucher for me. And I think on that particular story, I might have been paid. It was either three dollars for the for the the, the labor and two dollars for expenses, or two dollars for the labor and three dollars for expenses. But that you know, so whatever it was, and I would sit there and. Uh, he would uh, chat away about the news business and things that happened. Uh, Senator Kennedy, that would be Jack Kennedy, had uh, come there one time. He was telling me about it and whatever. And it's just a wonderful way to uh, absorb things. So as I say, at, uh, at the end of the summer, I think I'd made $108. So definitely not getting uh, into the news business for uh, the opportunity to make millions out of the gate, put it that way. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't need to make millions. <laughs> I just needed to uh, to be there to get you know to get involved. Yep. And uh, so, uh, so then I, I immediately uh, entered Brown University, and I started in on the Brown Daily Herald. And then toward the end of the year, I uh, got a job for that summer at the Providence Journal. In those days, the Journal had offices all around the state. And I was assigned that summer to three different places, the Warren office, uh, the Newport office, and the uh, East Providence office. And I was paid $75 a week hmm. before taxes. And I was living at home. No, I was, so I was paid $75 uh, salary plus $13 a week expense uh, money. And that was... Uh, for, you know, like for your car. Yep. Uh, but I drove one of my parents' cars, and I didn't have to pay for the gas. So uh, I really lived off the $13, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. for supper. And, uh, and I banked the rest of the uh, money, so I was living large. That's amazing that, uh, you know, in that day and age, Today, journalists, you know, have a similar, I mean, obviously anybody who's in any sort of creative sector, it's, there's no guarantee uh, unless you're in the PR industry, uh, especially out of the gate. But the fact that you were able to, I don't know, advance yourself, even chipping away while being in the center of the action at the same time. I mean, that says a lot about your hustle, I guess, and your determination. Well, that's true. On the other hand, uh, the... The hustle sometimes involved things like covering the Warren Sewer Commission. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, we did a lot of um, uh, routine work. And when I say routine, there was a routine. You would uh, constantly check the police department, fire department, uh, uh, funeral homes. You would call a funeral home and you would... I could never really figure out what to say. I would say, uh, hello, 
This is the Providence Journal. Do you um, um, do you have anything for us? Right. So we we spend a lot of time doing stuff like that, and um, it was a real pleasure to be in Newport for a few weeks. But uh, that was really sort of above me. That was like Triple A baseball, you know, sort of the top of the minor league system. Right. Um, and so anyway, so I applied, uh, for jobs job the next summer and they wouldn't hire me. They said, uh, you know, we don't have any room for you. The, the message really was you didn't really contribute much to our success here at the paper. Um, I was only 19 when, you know, that first summer, but I kept, you know, when they suggested I try other papers and I couldn't catch on anywhere and I just kept calling the journal. And finally, they said to me, we, we have a three-week, uh, somebody's going to be on vacation for three weeks. We need to fill that, and we'll, we'll, we'll guarantee you another two weeks. So you get five weeks of work. So I jumped at it, and I was uh, decent at it, and I wound up working 13 weeks. So that was good. Once those seeds were planted, how long before you started to, I guess, sort of develop the informed opinion that is inherent in your uh, your column or <clears throat> was inherent in your column and also just sort of the, the I don't know you, you you have this perspective of working your way up through a single paper a single focus did you ever see yourself sitting and uh, looking out the window on Fountain Street as the columnist and working your way towards that I guess um, only in the most vague terms that I couldn't possibly uh, articulate mm-hmm. Um, the first thing you should know is that for many, many years, uh, I was not in the opinion business. I was just a, you know, a straight line reporter mm-hmm. reporting the facts and, uh, no opinion at all. Uh, I had opinions in my head, but yeah, right. I wasn't free to express them. And, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, later as I tr- sort of evolved into a columnist, it was, uh, um, I uh, first I did sort of <clears throat> analysis pieces, um, which were difficult. I had to sort of be tutored in that, and then later, um, when I I wasn't really free, even when I was doing columns as a sideline, like a Sunday column, uh, I really wasn't free to get into the opinion business until I became a full time columnist and. 1995. Was that a um, <clears throat> proverbial weight lifted off your shoulders? Did you feel like you'd finally reached the your destiny, if you will? I mean, that seems maybe a little. I, well, I thought the, I thought I thought I was free, right? You know, like I had freedom, and uh, and I absolutely did. On the other hand, uh, there's a lot of responsibility. The way I would uh, describe it. When you're a columnist, uh, like I was, uh, the editors gave you uh, a gift, and the gift was uh, that you had more or less guaranteed space in the paper and uh, prime real estate. You know, you'd be on the cover of uh, a section, sometimes on the front page. Your name would be on it in big, you know, type and your picture. Um and it had a certain cachet. So that, that was the plus side of it, the freedom side of it. The uh, 
responsibility of it was, in effect, the editors were saying, don't fill us with schlock. We want, <laughs> we want you know, quality columns from you, and we don't have the time to assign them to you or to talk to you about it. Just do them. You know what I mean? It was, a, it was a, almost always up to me to come up with the column idea and uh, get it done. What was your, I guess, in that early period, as I guess the late 90s, let's say, as you were finding your voice, what were some of the more challenging moments that you had to write during? I, obviously, there's CNC2 and, <laughs> and Plunderdome, but also, you know, 9-11, a lot of national news, the station fire. This all, not necessarily the very beginning of your run as columnist, but the front end of it, I suppose. Yeah, were those yeah funny, you, funny you mentioned 9-11 because that was one time when uh, an editor did come up to me and uh, say, you know, we're counting on, we need, we need to hear your voice, he said. Yeah. Uh, that was one time uh, when I was uh, asked to do a column. Uh, I would say some of the uh, topics uh, that were sort of recurring, if you go through the years there, was, uh, I wrote a lot about corruption, I wrote a lot about uh, gay rights, gay marriage, uh, I stood up for uh, immigrants. Um, I would, uh, you sort of gain insight over the years uh, when you see one political leader, particularly in the General Assembly, uh, but also it could be a governor, or it could be a mayor, could be a Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice. You see a certain pattern of uh, arrogance, a sense of entitlement, uh, embarrassment uh, for, if not for themselves, if that is the problem, they weren't embarrassed, yeah. but they would embarrass uh, their colleagues. You know, so you sort of get the drift of things after a while. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. For daily news and perspective on COVID-19 here in Rhode Island, follow me on all social media platforms. I'll be live streaming the governor's news conferences on Facebook Live every day as long as I can and providing you with the latest news and perspective across all social media platforms. This road, the notion of, um, I don't know, just, just misbehavior in Rhode Island politics, it definitely drives people away from having an interest or potentially being a participant in a voting context. Uh, again, that's an anecdotal statement, just my perspective, but we, right. see, we see it going on today. I mean, we still, we still have these... Um, these types of stories. I mean, the speaker may not be going out in handcuffs right now, but it hasn't really gone away. You were at the center of this. What's your advice to Rhode Islanders to break this cycle? Well, the first thing I would tell people is to get involved. And, uh, that could take several, uh, steps. Uh, one is, uh, certainly, uh, to vote, but, uh, Run for office, you know. If you don't like the people who are in office, run for office yourself. If you don't want to run for office, uh, support somebody who is. So get involved in the fundraising. Get involved in the advising uh, a candidate. Uh, monitor things at the at the assembly, city hall, and so on. Now, one of the problems with this is that you don't have the news coverage. Uh, 
of politics that you used to have. The people who do it are very good, but they, there aren't that many of them anymore. And very few people read the newspaper, and it's uh, frustrating. I guess that sort of bleeds into the news in general, you know, and the shift in, in terms of media consumption, where people are getting the news, how they're getting it. But let's just focus on the Providence Journal. It's sad for me as someone who grew up with the evening bulletin box, you know, in my my dad would get the, the bulletin, both papers. Um, it's right. tough to see where it's at. I was at the Providence Journal office about a year ago, and I was in there just to pitch an idea, I think, to Alan Rosenberg. And as I was leaving, I mean, most of the desks are empty. There's people who are leasing space. So you do get the sense that there is a major shift, not much different than any other newspaper. But what do you think right now about where the Projo is? Do you think it's time for a major overhaul of newspapers in general, or is it just going to keep grinding until they don't exist anymore? Well, I'm not terribly uh, optimistic. Uh, you might have noticed, or maybe you didn't know to begin with, when you went in the Providence Journal building, that building has five floors, yes. four floors plus a mezzanine uh, and a basement. And the paper used to occupy all of that space. And now it's part of one floor. Uh, and uh, the job that I had doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there used to be a whole number of, a whole roster of reporters who had uh, beats uh, that uh, don't exist anymore or emerge with other beats. Uh, and of course, all of the state staff offices that I mentioned, Newport Warren, Pawtucket, Westerly, they're all gone, and the and the Washington Bureau is gone, and the paper is a shadow of its uh, former self, and the fall of the Herald News has uh, dwindled to uh, practically nothing, and you get all those papers uh, that are very very weak, and they're owned by an evil company, that uh, the emphasis is on the the bottom line being, uh, you know. Uh, what can we get away with? Who can we lay off next and merge operations with and so on? And it's very, very uh, depressing. I find uh, on the bright side that there are some newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and I would say the Boston Globe that, you know, they've had to make uh, economies, but they they try to, you know, win readers by being good and uh, throwing resources into it. And uh, so that's a pleasure. I guess that's what it comes down to now is resources and being open to new ways of storytelling. You know, we see, I guess the thing that I'm seeing now from my perspective is getting into the business is low wages, a lot of freelance opportunities, not a lot of pathways for people to get themselves into a situation like you were where you're embedded in the work for decades before you have a prominent voice now people are almost just free to either just pop up on the internet or you know the 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 pathway in television and radio and newspapers it seems like it gets cut off before people can reach their self-actualized journalistic self i guess so i think that's true and i I certainly think that nobody's going to have a career like i did uh, I could see that when I retired, but uh, now it's even uh, more dire. Uh, <clears throat> you have to be very uh, nimble if you're going into the news business, and uh, you have to be uh, 
uh, I would think it's very hard to get a, a job in a newspaper these days. But if you do, you have to be very, very nimble in uh, what you're covering and how you're covering it and tweeting all the time and that kind of thing. <clears throat> and uh, various people, as you know, their sort of way of making a living or trying to make a living is uh, doing blogs and uh, podcasts and things. And, uh, you know, it's not entirely bad in that uh, the Internet is good uh, in terms of delivering news or news bulletins or even accessing, uh, you know, a newspaper. But it's not the same. And I have had the experience numerous times. We get the New York Times uh, delivered. And every now and then, uh, for some reason, could be weather-related, it doesn't come. So that day, I'll sit down and I'll say, okay, I'm going to read it online. The next day, they bring the copy that had been missing the day before. I look at it, I start to read it, and I realize I hadn't read it at all. Yeah, right. It's just a different experience, and it, it, it makes me virtually cry uh, when I see people say, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I get that paper online. I, I don't need print newspapers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I have had the experience countless, countless times. I'll be at a restaurant or on a train or at a swimming pool, and I'll be reading a paper, the Globe or the, um, usually the Globe or the Times, and I, I'm done with it. I, can't, I just can't bring myself to throw it away. So I'll look around. And I'll say, uh, would you like a newspaper? Would you like the Times? Would you like the Globe sports section? Whatever. And invariably, certainly if the person is under 50, they'll say, uh, no thanks, I'm all set. And it's really uh, very, very sad and I, I would say pathetic. But it happens constantly. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't know, I don't know what it is that... Um I'm a performer as well. I'm a musician. That's actually what I was doing the last 10 years before I moved back here in New York. And I sense a, there are some people who, if they see you perform a song that you wrote, you're playing it on an instrument and you're singing it live in front of them. That's the ultimate experience. But the vast majority of the audience now, they don't want that. They want something that fits, that's a pre-recorded song. It's, it's perfectly there's no human elements to it. It's the tempo is just right for their jog or whatever it is. And so I sense that as well, where the analog world and being 35, I got to experience both sides of that, the transition as you did as well. Um, that's what's scary to me is, is the idea that we can Orwell's memory hole, so to speak, is easier to create when you don't have that tangible in-depth information. I, had, I have a friend, a contemporary, who wrote it. He's a, in a writing class, you know, like a hobby, and he wrote a. He was he had to write a, an essay on what, how he would come back in the next life, and he read, he wrote that he would come back as a cell phone, because that's the only way anybody would pay attention to him. And he, he said, he, he, he you know. So I had a little bit tongue-in-cheek about his children, you know, his, uh, they might be having a problem with their child, and he's standing there, and he says, uh, do you think they'd ask me and my wife, you know, with all our experience, and 
raising kids know they go to the, they go to Google to see <laughs> see how to handle a problem. Right. All right. Um, last couple of minutes here. Let's first of all. One of my, you know, mentors, if you will, through the television eventually for a few months in person um, was Jim Terracani. Um, I'll never forget the sea of journalists um, outside of his, his funeral, and I'll also never forget his um, celebration on the Senate floor, United States Senate floor. You also had a similar celebration <laughs> on the United States Senate floor upon retirement, Um I wasn't able to find that video, which is really disappointing to me, but I did find the transcript and I did find information on Senator Whitehouse's page. Can you put that into words, what that would be like to be basically written into the Mount Rushmore of Rhode Island journalism? I, I got quite a kick out of it. That was the last day that I was working. It was a Friday, and somebody, somebody came up to me in the newsroom and said, Senator Whitehouse is going to give a speech about you. And... uh the same morning, <clears throat> Mayor Cicilline came uh, to the newsroom and delivered a, uh, you know, proclamation. Uh, I don't remember which came first, but anyway, they said uh, Senator Whitehouse is going to give a speech about you right now on uh, C-SPAN. So I went over and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, "Wow, this is cool. Yeah. This is really uh, neat." And I was very impressed. Uh, obviously, his staff had done a lot of uh, research. On uh, on me, and uh, it was very well done. But the idea that he would do it at all was uh, fantastic. And they they sent me a you know a glossy print of it. It was great. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I thought this at the time, but as uh, it's my firm belief, and I've, I've been proven right that uh, nobody was going to have a career like I did uh, in this day and age uh, at the paper, at the Providence Journal, certainly. And uh, you know that. When I, I left the post and uh, Ed Fitzpatrick uh, took it over and he was working at it for a while, but it, it, right away, <clears throat> very soon, uh, you know, it, it they dropped the sections, the, the, the section that the column appeared in. So it, instead of appearing on the front uh, cover of, of a section, it was, uh, you know, inside. So right away, uh, that took some of the... Uh, visibility of the column and some of the glamour of the column and uh and uh, you know then he left and then he wasn't replaced right that was the the end of the line so to speak in in terms of that position and what an influential and important role in the state of rhode island to just get rid of you know it's it's yeah it's well I, influential <clears throat> influential <clears throat> excuse me influential is your word i i don't dispute it, but I, I don't really, I can't vouch for it. Uh, but I can vouch for the idea that it was uh, certainly well read. Yeah. I retired in uh, 2008, September 2008, and I can't tell you how often people come up to me. It happened to me yesterday. Um, uh, I was at the uh, ballpark, and people would come up and uh, introduce themselves to me. Uh, I was at a game uh, a couple of weeks ago. And my wife and I were sitting next to a fellow who was the, he, had, he was retired. He had been the wrestling coach at uh, Cranston West High School. And I said, oh, I knew people from Cranston. I knew Mike Trafficandy, who had been the mayor, and this and that. And we had quite a lively uh, discussion. 
it didn't click on him uh, who I was. And uh, uh, as the game went on, there was uh, an usher from Rhode Island that uh, I knew and that he knew, and so we were getting pictures taken and whatever. And the usher said to him, you know, this guy used to work for the Providence Journal. And the guy looks at me and says, oh, you're not Charlie Baxter, are you? <laughs> and he was, like, thrilled. Yeah. And this was, <clears throat> you know, uh, as I say, I retired in 2008, so here we are, 2020. It happens. Yeah, people, well, Rhode Islanders, they love their, um, we love our broadcasters, our journalists, you know, our basketball coaches, our Red Sox players. You know, it's, it's part of the, the DNA here, I think, or at least it was for a long time, and hopefully it still will be. My last question, I guess, would just be your advice out there for any creative person. It doesn't have to necessarily be someone who's going to in, end up in the news media, but in a world where now we're really focused on STEM, and I guess they make it STEAM, you know, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, but leaning towards creative, uh, civics, politics, things that right now aren't necessarily at the center of the educational structure in the, in the country, finding your own voice. What's your message to anyone out there of any age who's seeking that? Well, first, I, <coughs> excuse me. First, I would say, believe in yourself. Plug away. Uh, stay at it, and keep your eye on on the ball. And by that, I mean you may have to take <coughs> uh, jobs, side jobs, being a waiter, waitress, uh, whatever. Uh, you may have to take a couple of jobs at the same time. You may have to move to. Uh, Alabama or California or somewhere to uh, find a job, uh, <clears throat> but keep your eye on, on your goal. And uh, if you have uh, the chance, uh, as I did, to go to a place like the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, go. And just, uh, you know, a place like that, not only do you learn, but you make contacts, and there's a whole national uh, network of uh, alumni. And uh, you never know when uh, it's going to help you uh, to be able to get an interview or uh, an opportunity. Uh, if you could make contact with somebody who went to the school, taught, uh, taught at the school, whatever. As always, thanks for spending part of your day in Bartholomew Town. I'll be back on Friday with a brand new episode and have daily content for you across social media. Until next time, we'll talk soon. This is... The Bartholomew Town Podcast.